So today we are continuing this series simply entitled Chasing Carrots, which is the endless pursuit of more. Where your head at? Dang. Don't want to talk business, business. I guess I got to be the one to see the summer. Who really in this, in this? We so fed up. My life, 10 up. Your time, been up. Big prayers, sent up. Uh, couldn't do without him, out of I really dreamed about having this massive hamster wheel up, and if somebody acts up in the middle of the service, you know, make them get up there. I mean, all of us have bought into this lie at some time or another in which we just say, you know, if I have just a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that, I'm going to be satisfied with my life. I'm going to feel this great sense of peace. I'm going to be happy. Life is going to have great significance and meaning for me. And it's a lie. And every one of us has been a place where we've received that and we realize, well, that wasn't really it. And so what happens in our mind? We think, well, if I get a little bit more of that, then, then I'll be happy. And so we started last week with talking about chasing approval, the endless pursuit of approval, trying to live my life so that I can receive the approval of significant people in my life. So what did we learn last week? The lesson is this. I cannot please everybody, but I can please God. I can please God. So today we're going to talk about this unhealthy pursuit of perfection. This unhealthy pursuit of, a, of, a, of perfection, this idea of trying to attain something in my life to be able to make myself feel better about myself, to meet some kind of standard. And I, I have a feeling, I think this is in one sense a, a West County kind of a thing. I, I also think it's kind of a religious thing in which we have in our mind this concept of this idea that I have to attain this standard, I have to reach these goals, my life has to look like this, and if it doesn't, what happens to me? I feel like I'm a failure. I feel like I'm just completely unsuccessful, that I, I just, I've, I've ruined my whole life. And what's funny about people who wrestle with this particular you know, chasing after perfection is that though we're hard on ourselves, oftentimes we're easy on other people. You know, we look at other people and we say, oh, you know, when they make mistakes, we say, it's okay. You know, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody is perfect. But in our own life, we wrestle with holding these unrealistic expectations. And when we don't measure up to it, we feel shame. We feel rejection. We feel guilt. We feel this sense of unworthiness. And to top it all off, I mean, Scripture can be incredibly intimidating. What was it that Jesus said? Matthew 5, he says, be perfect. As your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. In other words, don't make any mistakes. Don't mess up. Be exactly like God. Don't have any bad thoughts. Don't have any bad days. But just be perfect. No pressure there at all, right? And then we have the culture that we live in. I mean, we live in this social media culture in which all this pressure is applied to us, oftentimes self-implied. You know, you're having a, maybe a mediocre day. It's not the greatest day in the world, but you're having a mediocre day, and then you get onto Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest, and you see, because every one of us has somebody in our life who's having the very best day of their life that day, and what do they do about it? They post it. 
and they put it on there. And you see all this great thing that they're doing, where they're eating, where they're going, or who they're hanging out with. And then we look at ourselves, and I got a stain on my T-shirt, and I, you know, I have accomplished nothing all day long today. And we just think to ourselves, I am the absolute worst. What is wrong with me? And for many of us, it leads to this unhealthy pursuit of being perfect, of trying to do more and more. And one of the segments of our population that suffers the most is teenagers. I mean, the pressure that is applied to teenagers in this area of trying to perform is so significant. In fact, earlier this year, research involving 40,000 students at universities in the UK, the US, and Canada found a 33% increase since 1989 to teenagers who feel that they must display perfection to secure approval. A 33% increase of teenagers who feel like they got to be perfect in order to receive approval. And the report's lead offer fears a hidden epidemic of perfectionism. Because you're not going to find that as a diagnosis somewhere. But what you do find is some of the underlying causes that come about as, at this particular fear. And one struggling perfectionist teen says, my brain feels like it's been punched. And so we live in this world of comparison. And it's so very unhealthy. So do you battle with this concept of perfectionism? I think there's three different ways that this perfectionism might show up in somebody's life. Number one, there is the self-oriented perfectionist. In other words, you put these high level of expectation on yourself. I mean, you have these standards that nobody could attain. But the problem with those particular kind of standards is you often obsess to the point of just shutting down right? Because you can't perform the way you should. And I've got to live up to my own st standards or I feel ashamed or guilty. The self-oriented um, perfectionist. Then there's the externally oriented perfectionist. You believe that there are some other people in your life that say you have to be perfect. And so you spend your life you know, trying to live up to the standards that you feel at least that somebody else in your life has opposed on you but you can feel, you know, what you do sometimes to mask it is you make fun of your, you know, work ethic. Or you make fun of your ability to do really well because, you know, you feel in a sense bad about it. But then the other side of it is you, you never feel like you measure up. And so you go around life feeling this measure of desperation or loneliness. And then there's the others-oriented perfectionist. This is the perfectionist who takes the standards they have for themselves and they apply them to everybody else. And oh, are they ever fun to live with, right? Because it's all critical, because you're not measuring up to the standard that I have in my life. And some of you, you had parents like that. And some of you are parents like that. I think the reason this is such an important topic is because though, yeah, this is a mental and an emotional, this is a psychological thing to talk about. I think at the root of it that this is deeply spiritual. Because I think we see this idea of perfectionism as this idea that I'm covering up something that's going on in my life. See, I think at its root it's a spiritual problem. Because perfectionism is covering up my deepest insecurities. 
because I don't want other people to really know who I am, so I kind of hide out and I kind of cover up. But I do it with this work ethic. I do it uh, attaining more than anybody else could ever imagine in my life. But what it really is is a covering up for the sinfulness in our lives. It's creating the illusion or the external standard that if I live up to this, then I'll be good enough for somebody. For my parents or for myself or for many of us, then I'll finally be good enough for God. And at the root of it, it's, it's a sinful issue. It's an issue of covering up our insecurities because of the sin in our life. And it goes back, I think, to the story of Adam and Eve. So God takes Adam and Eve and he puts them in this perfect place, right? And Adam and Eve were perfect. They had everything perfect until they disobeyed God. And then in their sin, when they disobeyed God, what did they do because of their sense of insecurities? They hid from God, and then he attempted to cover up their own sinfulness, right? And so when God shows up, they're hiding away, hoping he wouldn't see them anymore, or they covered up their sinfulness, right, because of the choices that they made. They hid from God, they covered up, and we've been doing that ever since, a covering for insecurities, for imperfections, and for our sinfulness. I, I, I think I've wrestled with this a lot of my life, at least my adult life. So I grew up, my, my dad and my uncles were all preachers. I have three brother-in-laws who are preachers, so I grew up in the preacher home and the preacher mentality. Many of you don't understand that, and God bless you because you don't want to, but it's like... I remember very clearly, and my dad, my dad is a uh, very loving man, but I remember him being very clear about you don't want to be a lazy preacher. You don't want to be a lazy preacher because ministry, it, it's easy to be a lazy preacher because you only work one day a week, right? And only that morning, right? And so it's like there was this sense underlying almost everything that I've done since day one to make sure that everybody else didn't think that I was a lazy preacher. And there were always those people along who, kiddingly or not kiddingly, whatever, but they would say things that it would kind of eat away with that. I, I have this game that I play in my mind in which I add up the number of hours that I work in a day just to prove that, you know what, I'm not a lazy person. I wrestle with that. And at the heart of it, though, is this insecurity, and many of you understand that because you wrestle with that as well, this trying to prove something to other people. It is a spiritual problem, and since at its root it's a spiritual problem, it needs a spiritual answer that can only come from God. So how is it, if I can't you know, do enough good to be right with God, how is it that I get good with God? How is the spiritual solved, problem solved by God? So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at several verses from 20 on, and the page number should be hopefully listed in your notes there. But Paul is writing these words, and here's what he says in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law, rather... Through the law, we become conscious of our sins. So he says, therefore, no one. Okay, so now we need to clarify no one. That's all of us in this room, right? No one. No one will be declared righteous. Not anybody. So 
Look to the person next to you and say, you're included in this, you're a sinner, right? You can't be good enough with God, right? No one will be declared righteous for God. It's almost like Paul is speaking into this perfectionistic tendency. I think Paul wrestled with this because he was such a type A kind of achiever personality. No one includes everybody, you know, whether you're a good person or you're a bad person, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. Whether you're 17 or you're 87, whether you're gay or you're straight, everyone is included. He says this, you can never be made right in God's sight by observing the law. Did you notice that phrase? Declared righteous is the word he used. It's like a courtroom setting. It's like you're standing before the judge and you are guilty. And in Jesus Christ, Jesus declares us righteous but what he's saying here is on your own trying to do enough good by obeying the law and when he talks about the law it's not the capital l law like ten commandments law this is like all of god's rules regulations guidelines all of it he says you pick any of it you pick all of it no one is ever declared righteous in god's sight by doing good stuff you can't be perfect enough to be declared righteous in God's sight. But then he continues in verse 20. He says there, rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. One of the purposes of the law is to show you how messed up you are. To prove to you and I, there's no way I could ever be good enough. In fact, J.B. Phillips translates it this way. It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. You see, God never gave us the commandments for us to be able to obtain salvation. God gave us the commandments, two predominant reasons. Number one, so we would know about his character and his nature. Because in seeing what he commands us to do, we understand about who God is. But secondly, to show us just how sinful and messed up we happen to be. The law reveals the reality that you and I desperately we need help. It doesn't matter how hard we try. But the problem today in our culture is people say, well, don't tell me how bad I am. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Don't judge me, right? Don't call me a sinful person. I'm not a bad person. Actually, this isn't judging. This is simply telling the truth. And the truth is, for all of us, you are messed up, screwed up, sinful people. Welcome to Wildwood Christian Church, where our goal is to help you feel better about yourself. <laughs> it's the truth of Scripture. And what the Scripture also says is the heart is wickedly deceiving us we are masters at deceiving ourselves and saying oh i'm good enough i can do enough good things in my life every single one of us has fallen short of god's standards all of us lack the capacity because of our sinfulness to be able to do enough good things to earn our way to heaven and the reason this is so important not because i want to make you feel bad about yourself but the reason this is so significant is this, until you see yourself as a sinner, you will never see your need as a savior. Until we recognize the reality of who we are, we will never call out for Jesus Christ. It shows us I need help. So what, I, what can I do to be made right with God? 
Well, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 3. He says again, verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. But now, and I love this phrase, but now. You are messed up, you are hopeless, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we are made right not by religious efforts, not by doing good works. You are made right not by getting rid of all the bad stuff in your life. You are made right not by joining a church, but we are made right by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the sinless Son of God. He's the one who came to this earth, and he did live a perfect life. He never sinned so that he could fulfill the law. It could be nailed to the cross and we could discover the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ. We're made right only by putting our faith and trust for salvation in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how bad you are and how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how much darkness there is in your life. This is true for everyone who believes. So how are we made right with God? Not Christ plus the church, not Christ plus being a good person, not Christ plus being nice to the preacher. It's not Christ plus anything. It is Christ alone, which means it's not perfectionism, but it's grace. In fact, if you look at the distinction between perfectionism and grace, you say, perfectionism, it focuses on what I do, my performance, my good stuff, my religious deeds. Grace focuses on what Jesus has already done, his righteousness, his sacrifice. Perfectionism is all about me, my works, and my efforts, but Grace is all about Jesus, the sinless Son of God, and what he did for us. Perfectionism believes that if I obey, if I'm good enough, if I'm holy enough, then maybe God will love me. But grace is so much different because it starts with the love of God. Because God loves me, I can be saved. Because of his love for me and what he did for me on the cross, then I can live for him. I can choose to obey him it's my response to his goodness perfectionism says i need to win god's approval but grace says because of jesus christ i am living from the approval of god through jesus christ and so because of jesus and grace the pressure's off we can be free to walk in that and to embrace his grace to follow the goodness of god so understanding and living by the grace given through Jesus Christ, it takes the pressure off. So what are a couple of ways that we can apply this to, to our lives? Well, the first one, with the holidays coming, I figured you'd appreciate it, it's this one. That we need to choose people over perfection. We need to choose people over perfection. So the seasons are coming, right? Thanksgiving is in just two and a half weeks, and then Christmas is not long after that. And for some of you, you're like pumped and excited. It's Thanksgiving. 
pig out. It's Christmas time, the most wonderful time of the year, and you're like loving this and you're so excited about it. And others of you have been freaking out for weeks already, right? Because you know family's coming and that dinner's got to be ready and those things got to be prepared and you've got a list that's like 200 miles long. You, you feel that because you feel this need to create the perfect holiday. I want Christmas to be the most amazing thing this year. I want Thanksgiving with my family to be wonderful. And our desire to create the perfect holiday can turn against us. Did I tell you I talked to my mother today? And? And they've decided they're coming for Christmas too. You know, it's not too late to change our plans. No, 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 that's great. It's great. I think you're forgetting how difficult it's going to be having everybody in the house at the same time. Honey, they're family. They're not strangers off the street. All they do is argue. Christmas is about resolving differences and seeing through the petty problems of family life. Yeah, and it's about my mother accusing your mother of buying cheap hot dogs and your mother accusing my mother of waxing her upper lip and... Then they don't speak Your mother to waxes other. her upper lip? She has for years. <laughs> Doesn't show. I don't know, Sparky. I just have this Ellen, it's not gonna... I want to have Christmas here in our house. It means a lot to me. All my life I've wanted to have a big family Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's just that I know how you build things up in your mind, Sparky. You set standards that no family event can ever live up to. When have I ever done that? Parties. Weddings. Anniversaries. Funerals. Holidays. Vacations. Graduations. I know none of you are like that. But it, you know, I mean, as simple as it sounds, I know it's so hard, but it's choosing people over perfection. So my picture of a perfect holiday is peace and quiet, right? That's my idea. Just it's calm and it's peace and quiet, except all our kids come to our house. And so we have seven adults and four kids, six and under, which I love and I'm thankful So I have to work hard because I'm not very good at that. It's saying, you know what? It's not going to be peace and quiet. But the people that I love to be around are here, and that's who I want to spend time with and, and be you know, intentional in stepping into that. It's choosing people over whatever our idea of perfection is. And number two, it's choosing perfect love over perfect performance. So we can choose the perfect love that our Father in Heaven has for us over trying to perform and trying to be good enough. That somehow in our minds we think we're going to make God happy with us. Because see, the spirit of perfectionism, as we said, it's covering up. It's covering up our insecurities. It's covering up our fear. It's covering up our, our sinfulness. So what is your greatest insecurity? What is it that you're trying to cover up with this perfectionistic standard that you set for yourself or others in your life? For some, it's a deep fear of, you know, inadequacy. Others of you, you're trying to cover up the shame of something you've done or something somebody else has done to you. 
For some, it's guilt. For others, it's fear of rejection or a fear of being judged. But whatever it is, it's, we're covering up something. And you know what? You don't have to be perfect. But some of you are remembering how we started this sermon, right? And you said, but wait a minute, Doug. Didn't Jesus say, be perfect, right? Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, So I intentionally pulled that verse out of context because when you study God's word, one of the crucial things that we've learned through this year is you don't just pull a verse out and use it out of context, but you need to understand what's going on before and what's happening after. You need to understand who was writing it and into what they were writing and the people who were listening to that. And so the context of this verse, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, is the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus teaching about the standards of God from the Old Testament. In one sense, Jesus raises all those standards to, in one sense, prove to us you can't meet them anyway, but also to demonstrate in a greater way what God is doing in our life. But the verses just before this are so important because they're a commandment for us to love other people. So let me read those for you. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in the context of loving others, he gives us this phrase. This word perfect, it is the word teleos. It doesn't mean to be without mistake. It means reaching the conclusion or the end. Uh, It was the word that Jesus used on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Meaning, he has completed the work that God sent him to do. He has perfected, fulfilled, set aside the law. He has done what God asked him to do. So what it means to be perfect is to become mature, to reach the end, to reach the place that God has in mind for us. An eight-year-old boy is not physically mature or emotionally mature, but hopefully a 28-year-old man is. And that's what God has in mind for you and for me. In his love, living in the midst of his love, that we reach a point in which we can love other people like that. It's not that you have to be perfect in performance, but it's that you need to grow in your love, receiving the love of God so that you can love even those around you who are your enemies. But this is such a challenging lesson for me to learn to receive the love of God. Because I think part of the reason I work so hard is to overcome the inadequacies that I am just, I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. I'll never be good enough husband. I'll never be a good enough dad. I'll never be a good enough preacher. I'll never be a good enough friend. I just, this fear that I am just simply never enough, but I'm slowly learning that that's not my calling and that's not your calling. Our role in assignment 
is not to convince people how good we are, but to convince people how good God is and how much he loves us. It's not about our performance. It's about Jesus. It's not about our righteousness. It's about him. He loves us no matter what. So one of the blessings that I've enjoyed is uh, my son and his wife and our two of our grandkids have been living with us for the last three months as they get their house ready. So here's a picture right here. There's Lael, who's four and a half. There's Eliana, who's like 17 months, I think, something like that. And it is such a blessing to be able to spend this kind of time with them that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, Eliana, the little one, so we were outside playing yesterday. We were having fun, and she's doing pretty good at the walking thing as long as it's level, right? Everything's level, but if it's much of an incline or if it's even the tiniest little bit of a step up or step down, I mean, she starts doing that Frankenstein walk. You've seen kids do that, you know, they, and, and she'll fall down all the time. Now, what kind of a grandfather would I be if I looked at her when she fell down and says, what is wrong with you? That is just pathetic. Can't you walk better than that? I think I'll just trade you back for somebody else who could walk a whole lot better than you can walk. Your heavenly father is not withdrawing his love from you because you mess up. He's not taking his love away from you because you fail in one area or another. No, what I do with that little girl is I pick her up and I give her a hug and I tell her how special she is and how great I think she's doing and that she's going to keep doing better and better and I'm always going to be there to help her. See, your God, your Father in heaven is cheering you on when you do well. But when you and I mess up, he's continuing to love us because there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing you could do to cause God to love you any less. Nothing that you could do. Because love is not something that he does. Love is someone that he is. It is his character. It is his nature. It is his essence. So you know what you and I need to do? We need to step into that love. We need to allow ourselves to relax in the love of God and allow that to be the thing that motivates us to live for him. Not trying to perform for him because Jesus takes the pressure off. 